beginning in chapter 5, verses 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And now just across, in chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. So it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Father, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you are serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Thanks, Matt. Um, Can you please uh, keep your Bibles open there at Ephesians chapter 6 and grab one of the leaflets that you were given as you came in. You'll see on the inside a reasonably detailed outline. Uh, There's some blanks that you're going to need to fill in today and there's a discussion question near the end that if we have time we'll get to. Um, If you look at the leaflet, you'll see on the top left a reminder of this series that we've been making our way through in Ephesians. Um, The diagram there uh, just is a quick reminder that the letter itself is divided into two halves. The first part, chapters 1 through 3, describe in really extravagant terms a God who is so rich in mercy, so good to us. Before we come to the second half, chapters 4 through 6, that same God who prepares good works in advance for us to do. And in fact, chapter 4 verse 1 is the turning point in the letter. You'll see I've printed it there on your handout. Uh, Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And then what we've seen over the last few weeks is what that life looks like in the context of the whole church family. So unity, chapter 4, purity, second half of chapter 4 and chapter 5. This current bit that we're in is all about relationships. And last week we looked at wives and husbands. This week, obviously, the passage talks about children and parents, slaves and masters. And the key to it, of course, is chapter 5, verse 21, that Matt read at the start of that reading, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Uh, which, as you'll recall, was last week's memory verse, and I've given you a break this week. There's no new memory verse, because I figured chapter 5, 21, that's the key. So if if you're doing the memory verse challenge, that would be excellent. What I want to do today is something a little bit different, and I want to talk more generally about Christian ethics. That is, why God calls us to act in a particular way, in one that's worthy of the calling that we've received. Uh, In other words, what I want to do is try and look at the broader framework that lies behind the specific relationships in our church family, um, even if we're not in all of those relationships ourselves. So, for example, not all of us are parents, none of us are slaves or masters, but still, Scripture teaches us about how we do good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. And what you'll see from the handout, these are the blanks for you to fill in, we'll see four different types of ethical motivation, four reasons for why we are to act in a particular way. And that's what I'd like us to focus on today, before at the end hopefully we'll get some time for discussion with each other. The way we'll do that is look at the different relationships that Paul describes. We're going to start with children and parents, so pick it up with me in chapter, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, and Paul's instruction to children. 
Verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first command with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Well, you can see there in your notes, the instruction is pretty straightforward. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. It's worth noting that back in chapter 5, verse 21, we were all told to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And now children are told explicitly they are to obey their parents in the Lord. Uh, It's actually the same command that we'll see in verse 5, where slaves are told to obey their earthly masters. I think what Paul is doing is signalling that when it comes to this relationship, uh, it's a particular type of relationship, uh, arguably with less freedom and flexibility. So why? Well, point two there on your handout, the matter of motive. The matter of motive. Why is it that children are to obey their parents in the Lord? Well, actually, Paul will give two reasons in this section. The first, here's the first blank for you to fill in. Ethical motivation number one, because God says it's right. God says it's right. Verse one, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It is good in and of itself. Or you might say it is the natural order of things for children to obey their parents. And if you're the kind of person who's into interesting technical terms, this description of ethics is called deontology. Um, It means that there is a right or a duty for us to just do a certain thing. What Paul is saying, I think, is that for Christians, sometimes to live a life that's worthy of the calling we've received... It means we do things simply because God says we should, because God says so. And that's the case even if we don't fully understand why. That God says so is enough. After all, he is the one who made everything from nothing by a word, which means that he alone has the right to decide on ethics and morality. And more than just being powerful, actually, well, he is good. We've seen throughout this whole letter, this is a God who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. This is the one who is rich in mercy, who made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our sins. This is the God who has actually prepared good works for each one of us to walk in. This is a God who has a track record for us to trust him and to take him at his word. So sometimes... We do things just because he says we should. Well, I wonder how persuasive this is for you as an ethical motivation, how compelling it is for you to actually do it. Or more importantly, I wonder how persuasive it is for someone who's not yet a Christian. Hold that thought, we'll come back to it. Because Paul has a second ethical motivation as he talks to parents, uh, to children, and why they should obey their parents in the Lord. This is the next gap for you to fill in, ethical motivation number two, because it will be better for you. Because it will be better for you. Now, that's what he's saying, I think, in verse three. So that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Why should children obey their parents? Well, this is all about consequences. And if you want to use economic terms, this is about maximizing your utility. Your life will be better if you do what your parents say. 
Now, in making this point, Paul clearly has quoted from somewhere. He's quoted from the Old Testament and from Deuteronomy chapter 5. Uh, I've printed it there on your handout so you can see it. It's basically exactly the same as what he says here. This is really interesting. So the context of Deuteronomy 5 is critical in understanding what Paul is saying. In Deuteronomy 5, Moses is speaking to the Israelites. They, are, they have spent 40 years in the desert where their parents died because they rejected God. And after those 40 years, on the edge of the promised land, as their children prepare to enter, this is the place that, of course, their parents can't go because of their sin. As the children prepare to enter, they're told, honour your parents. Honour your sinful parents. It's at least a hint, I think, that when the Bible says to honour your parents... It doesn't always mean to obey them or to do what they said or to repeat their mistakes. We'll come back to that idea in a moment. Notice, however, that with this ethical motivation, it'll be better for you, uh, Paul is using a carrot, you might say, not a stick. This is a promise, it's not a threat, it's an assurance, it's not a bribe. Paul is not implying that the reason we do this is to earn God's favour. In the case of the Israelites, of course, God had already rescued them from slavery in Egypt. That's why he's brought them to the edge of the promised land. And likewise, actually, for us who are New Testament believers, God made us alive in Christ when? When we were dead in our transgressions and sins. So when, when we say you do things because it'll be better for you, it's more than simply saying you're self-serving. It's actually saying it's the inevitable and right response to God's grace of being saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. Well... Two ethical motivations here. Let's talk a little bit about application on this particular subject area about children and parents. And there's a couple of questions I thought I'd reflect on with you down on the bottom left-hand side. Two matters of practical application. Firstly, so does obey mean total obedience? Does obey mean total obedience? Are children ever allowed to disobey their parents? Well, I'm sure some of you are interested in the answer to this. Uh, as most of you know, I worked with university students for 18 years. Can I say that I fielded the same question from teens and young adults over and over again, which of course were the same questions that I asked when I was a university student. They were mostly about loopholes to justify avoiding their parents' wishes. And it's possible that my perspective only changed when we had children of our own. Does obey mean total obedience? Must a child do everything that their parent always says? Well, no. No. We saw that partly in the context of Deuteronomy 5. Clearly, the children weren't expected to just repeat what their parents had done. And to use another admittedly extreme but important example for me to acknowledge, children must never be forced to remain in situations of family violence or coerced into illegality by their parents. In fact, it is the wider church's responsibility to intervene at that point. 
the reason why obey doesn't always mean complete obedience in every way is because of Paul's explicit qualification. You notice there in verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, in the Lord. Whatever that means, we'll come to that in a moment, whatever it means, I think it's pretty clear that children are not required to always do everything that their parents want. Which leads to the second question then, here's the one that you want to know about, how should children disobey their parents? Well, let me say first that Paul's instruction to obey your parents in the Lord, that's actually pretty broad. It means, I think, that for Christian children, obedience is the norm. Disobedience is the rare exception. It is the last resort. Uh, it's true, there's going to be a balancing command to parents to not exasperate their children. We'll get to that. But from a Christian child's perspective, the normal expectation and default orientation, it's to obedience. Having said that, factors like age and degree of dependence are relevant. Age and degree of dependence are relevant. That is, a higher level of obedience is presumed from infant children who are dependent on their parents just to survive. And of course, the reverse is true as well. Adult children need to be allowed to make their own decisions. Not only because they'll never grow up if they don't, what will they do when their parents are gone, but actually because their children ultimately don't answer to their parents for the way in which they have lived their lives. They answer to Christ. And when he asks if they have lived a life worthy of the calling they've received, a child cannot simply say, I did what my mum and dad told me to do. Now, in saying that, it doesn't mean, therefore, that children should rush to independent living just so they can get on with ignoring their parents. Even when they're grown up, children are still their parents' offspring. And that means, I think, in particular, children ought seek to honour their parents, both in private but equally in public. Children are to honour their parents, both in private and in public, can I say this, even if their parents are not acting particularly honourably, uh, for whatever reason that might be. If an adult child chooses to go against their parents' wishes, against their parents' dreams and desires, it means that they need to do so respectfully, and their goal must still be to seek to bring honour to their parents as best they can. For me, uh, what that's looked like over the years since I've become an adult? Well, at the very least, it's meant continuing to involve my parents in my decisions, to seek out their opinions about major life decisions. So, for example, before I proposed to Wendy, or when we made the decision to go to Bible college. And now, as my parents age, it means looking after their interests, even as they can no longer fully look after themselves. Well, once again, 
how persuasive is this for you? I wonder how persuasive this might be for those who aren't yet Christian. Well, come with me then to point two on the right-hand side. What about fathers and parents? Let's look at the other side of the relationship and see what we learn here about ethical motivations. Read verse 4 with me. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Well, the instruction is pretty clear. Don't exasperate your children. Uh, One of the questions, of course, is, as you notice there, verse 4, why does Paul speak particularly to fathers at this point? Why not to both parents? Well, let me say, I'm pretty sure he had both mother and father in mind. He's already referred to that in verse 2. But maybe he focuses particularly on fathers because in Roman times, the father was the head of the household. Uh, We saw that back in Ephesians chapter 5. The father was the head of the household. The patriarch who held absolute power and authority over everyone under his roof. So much so that he could sell members of his household into slavery if he chose. He could punish with the death penalty. My guess is that it would have been tempting for a father to be a little bit autocratic or tyrannical, to not listen to others. Or at the very least with that kind of power at his disposal, to be just a bit impatient and harsh, maybe to exasperate his children. Of course, the opposite is just as likely uh, of fathers being lax and abdicating their responsibility because parenting can be hard work at times. Well, if the instruction is fathers or parents do not exasperate your children, what about the matter of motive? Why? Well, it's interesting because at this point, Paul could have said, fathers, don't exasperate your children because it won't work anyway. That is, being harsh to your kids isn't going to win them over, so no point forcing them to comply if you just lose the relationship. He could have said that, I suppose, but that's not what he says this time. That brings us to the third ethical motivation. Why do we act the way in which you do? Because God tells you to. Because God tells you to. Verse 4. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. See, whereas the first part of the verse says what they are not to do, they're not to exasperate them, the second half of the verse, Paul says how parents, what they are to do, they are to bring their children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. What Paul is telling parents, I think, is that your role as a parent is to be God's representative or God's agent or God's authorised delegate responsible for raising your children to love and serve Jesus. That's what bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord means. And Paul is saying, I think, that that's how the parents will live a life worthy of the calling that we've received by bringing their children up in the teaching and instruction of the Lord. Well, let me take a step back and make a couple of brief comments about how this plays out in practice. Firstly, one of the reasons why I think Paul urges parents not to exasperate their children 
is because, to be really blunt, no one likes to be corrected. No one likes to be corrected. Uh, we know that from our own experience. Uh, even if we're okay with being shown how to do things well, and to be honest, some of us are even too proud for that, but even if we're okay with being shown how to do things well, few of us like being told, but you're doing it wrong. So Paul says to parents, don't exasperate your children. Literally, when he says exasperate, he says, do not make them angry. Do not make them angry. It's the same word as back in chapter 4, verse 26, where we were told, in your anger, do not sin. So what Paul is saying, I think, is that as kids learn to grow up, Paul is urging parents, don't provoke them. Don't make it any harder than it needs to be. And maybe, if I can put it this way, maybe recalling our own frustrations with our own parents might help us to be a little better. In fact, when Paul talks about bring them up, it implies, I think, an end point. That there is a point at which parents eventually need to let their kids go. One of the things that Wendy and I tell first-time parents to be when we catch up with them, to talk about how becoming a parent is going to change their life, what we talk to them about is that they're raising their kids to leave them. They're raising their kids to leave them. And that means, in the meantime, praying for courage and patience and wisdom to teach those children to love Jesus as they do. Because there'll come a day when they'll answer to the Lord for themselves. And although you'll always be their parent, you won't be there to intercede for them. Second comment about how this plays out in practice. Parents, we're told, they're to bring their kids up in the training and instruction of the Lord, not in my training or in my ways. They had to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord so that they might live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. Now that word there, bring them up, bring them up, again, literally, it's the word for feed or nourish. It's the same word that we saw back in chapter 5, verse 29, where it described how Christ feeds his church. So parents, you are to feed your children... Uh, in the training and instruction of the Lord. You're to nourish them in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, uh, my three children have always loved to be fed. They love to go out and celebrate special meals, and we've loved to treat them. But what Ephesians 6 is saying is that as a parent, what God wants is that I feed and nourish them with the training and instruction of the Lord. Not that I just feed, if I can put it this way, their sporting ambitions or feed their career success or feed their lifestyle goals. In many ways, I think, this is an honest diagnostic test for parents. How much time have you spent instructing your children in the Lord's ways versus instructing them on how to hold a cricket bat? And to extend the metaphor about feeding, well, neither are parents, or grandparents for that matter, 
to feed their own dreams and their own desires to try and live them out through their children? They had to feed them in the training and instruction of the Lord. Uh, This came home to me once in a very clear way. Um, I was the first grandchild to marry on my side of the family. And uh, just a couple of weeks after our wedding, uh, my very Chinese grandfather told my very Anglo bride, you know how this is going to finish, I want two great-grandsons quickly. (laughs) And he wasn't kidding. It's not to parents to feed their own dreams and desires through their children. It's to feed and nourish them on the training and instruction of the Lord. And so it's worth me saying that actually most of that instruction, it takes place Monday through Saturday. It doesn't take place on Sundays. It takes place in life moments. So I want to say to parents amongst us, you must be present. You must be present. Many who have high-powered jobs give more time to everyone else in their life than they do to their own children. I don't say this to guilt you. I say it because it's not too late to change. Parents, what legacy would your children say that you're in the process of leaving them? Now, this is hard and it's confronting and... It's one of the reasons why this week's recommended reading, you'll see a reference to it there, uh, by, is a book by, a terrific book by Harriet Connor called Big Picture Parents. And there's a book that Wendy and I read that we found really helpful in terms of thinking about what it is, what is our purpose in parenting? It was to raise our kids to love and serve Jesus and you can see a review of the book there from Wendy's website. But I guess... Isn't that the great encouragement from seeing Ian's story before? Or more to the point of seeing the story of Ian's dad, just an ordinary bloke who longed to bring his kids up to love Jesus just as he did. Well, third and final thing I want to say, and it's the question I printed there on the right-hand side of your handout, so whose children are we talking about? Whose children are we talking about? Well, as I've tried to emphasize throughout this whole series, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is written to a whole church. It's not written to an individual. It's not written just to parents. Because what he's saying at this point, it's not just for the parents to hear in a parents-only workshop. It's for the whole church to hear. Because the children in our church family belong to all of us, not just to their biological parents or their legal parents. They are our spiritual offspring. They are the ones, to use the Deuteronomy metaphor again, they are the ones who live in the land long after you and I are gone. We are all spiritual parents, charged with bringing up Christian children in the training and instruction of the Lord. And whether you understand that role to be something like an uncle or an auntie, Uh, maybe a godparent or an elder, maybe a youth leader or a mentor, the principle is still the same. All of us are to be involved in this because it's not just the biological parents who have to do all the work. To be frank, actually they cannot. If for no other reason, then as we all know, the day comes eventually when children stop listening to their parents 
although they will listen to the other adults in their lives who are usually just saying the same thing as what their parents were saying anyway. I particularly want to speak to those of us who don't have biological children of our own. I want to say to you, you also have the privilege of shaping and influencing the next generation. This is that picture of intergenerational church family that we here at Trinity have been talking about and praying for and longing to become more like. It can happen at a formal or a structural level. As we've talked about, over the years ahead, we're going to move towards two all-age AM gatherings. Or it could happen in the wonderful kids' ministry that takes place every Sunday morning. I want to say that personally, I'm eternally grateful to the kids' leaders who led me to Christ when I was a teenager, when my parents used to drop me off at the local church just so I could attend Sunday school. Could you think of any better way to spend part of your Sunday morning than bringing up a young person in the training and instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ? Last week we had 71 kids in the kids' program. If you want to get involved, please chat with Stephen Urmson afterwards. So it can happen formally in the structures, in the way in which you're organised, but equally, you don't need permission. It can happen informally. I heard recently about um, a couple of uh, gentlemen from our 9am gathering who started coming to the Friday night young adults group. They decided that they wouldn't wait for the young adults to actually approach them. They'd go to them. And that's actually the story, again, that's been Wendy and my experience. Like many of us, we moved to Adelaide from somewhere else. When we came here, we moved away from our extended biological family. But it's the members of this church family who have helped raise our children over the last 18 years. I was thinking this week about a former 7pmer, Steph. A decade ago, she rang us up and asked if she could take our four-year-old daughter out on a fortnightly play date. She didn't have any children of her own. Of course, the thing was, she was a CMS missionary from Central Asia on home assignment. So it turns out the part of the reason she wanted to take our four-year-old daughter out on a play date was so that she could go to playgrounds and strike up conversations with Muslim young mums now that she had a little person alongside her. Now, I know I said that there would be no new memory verses today, but I couldn't resist, so I came up with a bonus one. Maybe you might call it a manifesto. It's the the verses that are printed there on your handout. It's a long one. Psalm 71. Since my youth, God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvellous deeds. Even when I'm old and grey, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. I want to say that those who are still younger in the Lord are keen. So please come and talk to the pastoral staff if you have any suggestions or if you want to hear about ways to get involved. Well, uh, this ethical motivation, why do we have to in which way in which we do? Sometimes it's because God tells us to. 
And so once again, I wonder how persuasive this is for you or how persuasive it might be for an unbeliever. Come finally then to slaves and masters, verses 5 through 9. Now, for the sake of time, actually, I'm not going to spend, say much at all about this. I just want to point out that uh, slavery back then is not the same as what we might associate with modern-day slavery. Um, of course, it wasn't great being a slave in those times, but it was better than starvation when there was no such thing as social security. The fact that Paul will mention slaves at this point is a hint. They had a place in the household. They belonged to the family. In fact, in the service of a good master, to be a slave was a position of honour and dignity, even respect. So, it's not directly applicable to us today, I understand that, but there is one last ethical motivation that Paul refers to. Read with me from verses 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them, not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Well, the instruction is pretty clear. Slave, obey your earthly masters... But when it comes to motive, well, Paul does talk in verse 8 about knowing that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether slave or free. That's similar to the it'll be better for you argument. But he gives one final additional motivation. Here's the blank for to fill in. Because God is watching. Because God is watching. So verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters, just as you would obey Christ. It's interesting that Paul will also point out that masters also answer to God. Uh, Verse 9, he who is both their master and yours in heaven is yours and yours is in heaven. But I think the idea here is that even if an earthly master isn't watching, Paul is saying our heavenly master sees everything. That's not meant to be terrifying, that's meant to be a great comfort and a relief. God sees what you do. He sees your faithful service, even if no one else does. Even if you get no other earthly recognition, God is watching. Wasn't it amazing, the praises that were poured out on Queen Elizabeth this week? Weren't they wonderful? And rightly so. but ultimately they don't really matter because they will not last. Only Christ's commendation does. How do we do this in practice? How do we live with God watching us in practice? Well, verse 7 does give some practical advice. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Uh, This, I think, is actually a pretty profound shift in perspective. It's saying, as we serve others, so we serve Christ. And maybe Jesus' words in Matthew 25 help. Whatever you did for the least of his brothers and sisters, you do for him. 
So to return to the child-parent relationship before, all of us know the reaction we'd have, or we had when our parents tell us to do something, tidy your bedroom. What if it were Jesus making that request? How much more so when it comes to the instruction to grow up in the training and instruction of the Lord? So who are you serving?